My name is David Sandel. I was drafted five minutes ago to moderate this panel, uh, which I'm delighted to do. Uh, and particularly because we have such uh, extraordinary speakers. Um, and let me just briefly introduce them, then they're going to give uh, remarks, uh, and, and then we're going to have question and answer. Um, so we have to my immediate left here, Chiang Liu, who's the Secretary General of the Global Forum on Energy Security, based in Beijing. Um, he's worked at CAS, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, since 2004, where he's been Director of Energy Economics, the Energy Economics Division, and he's an, been an Associate Professor um, at CAS since 2008. He was a visiting scholar at uh, Johns Hopkins at SAIS. Uh, he holds a PhD in economics um, from the Graduate School of CAS. Uh, then uh, to his left, we have Fu Chiang Yang, who is also based in Beijing. Um, uh, Mr. Yang is a senior advisor on climate, energy, and environment for the NRDC China program and formerly the director of global climate solutions for WWF International. Uh, he was vice president of the Energy Foundation and chief, rep chief representative for their office uh, in Beijing in 2000 to 2008. He has a PhD in industrial engineering from West Virginia University and a BS in physics um, uh, from Jilin uh, in China. And then on the far left, we have uh, Damien Ma, who's a fellow at the Paulson Institute, focused on investment and policy programs um, and leads uh, research projects and activities there. Um, he's the co-author of the book In Line, Behind a Billion People, How Scarcity Will Define China's Ascent in the Next Decade. And Damien, there have already been free books handed out today. Uh, I don't know what you have available. Um, he also serves as an adjunct lecturer at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern, um, and he has an MA in Asia Studies and Political Science from the University of Michigan and a BA, BS dual degree in inter International Relations and Journalism um, from Boston uh, University. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to our first panelist um, and look forward to the discussion. Oh, yeah. uh, thank you. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, David Sandro, uh, for the introduction. And, uh, uh, good morning, uh, everybody, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for the invitation from Hudson Institute. Uh, my, uh, my, assignment, uh, my assignment of the topic, uh, topic is China's energy future, pollution versus energy security. And uh, uh, this is a very interesting topic, I think. So uh, China, since the 1979 is always a uh, target. Uh, at first is appraisal, and then is uh, the target of blame. We are always blamed. And, but that is very interesting, I think, because in China, Chinese people always are regretful for this, uh, for this uh, blames. I, I think in the, in the area of energy, uh, let me represent uh, an example for a very famous uh, foreign heroes in China. It's, it, it is uh, Dr. Ben Xun. Dr. Ben Xun is a Canadian uh, doctor. He came to China in the uh, period of uh, anti-Japanese war. In, 1970, uh, in 1938, he came to China as a doctor. and. Uh, help uh, Chinese army to do many surgeries in the battlefield. And he was a member of the Communist Party of Canada. And uh, he was died uh, after an infection uh, in, uh, during the surgery. 
1970, uh, in 1939. And after his death, Chairman Mao uh, wrote an article to, to memorize the Dr. Bessel. Uh, Chairman Mao said, uh, what is the spirit of the doc, uh, Dr. Bessel? This, this spirit, we can call it the internationalism. A man, a foreigner man, came across the Pacific Ocean and came to China and Hyper Earth without any requirement and saved so many Chinese people and even sacrificed his, his life. So we call it the internationalism. And in the era of the energy, China is also a role of internationalism. When the world needs oil, needs cheap oil, we use coal as our main energy. And after the oil crisis in 1970s, we began to export crude oil and the sweet oil to the world. So after the uh, reform and the open up policy. We even sacrifice our environment, our domestic resources, and even the health of our people to produce the goods for, for the world. So even a joke, when the world began to mitigate the process of global warming. We even invent the smoke, the serial smoke, to, pre to prevent this process. You know, the, the smoke can slow down the global warming. It's, very, it's a joke, but it's a serious situation in China. So what is the energy security? I think it is a situation most of the residents and the industry can have access of clean energy in affordable price. And in China, at first, before the recovery of Daqing oil field, the energy security issue is a reliable supply of energy, especially the supply of energy for transportation and electricity. Then, until the uh, year of the beginning of the reform and open up, uh, the energy security issue has become the endeavor to guarantee the demand for energy, especially for the industries and the resi uh, residents. So after the reform, uh, uh, the em emphasis was not changed. We are still focusing on the supply, uh, su supply of energy to industries and households, but we have to import more and more energy from international uh, market. But the energy policy in China is still rely on domestic resources. Even we began to import uh, crude oil from the, uh, from the world, most of the energy supply is based on the coal resources in, inside China. Along this uh, direction, China has used out most of the crude oil resources and much of the recoverable resources of coal. 
we have built dams and hydropower plants in most of the economically available rivers, uh, including the branches and the tributaries, such as the biggest dam in the world, the Three Ghost Dam. But is, uh, is this our policy focused on the energy security? I don't think so. If we uh, really care about the energy security, we should import more resources, more oil, more coal from the world, not, not to use out our own uh, resources. And especially the, uh, the domestic uh, resources is not so good and not so uh, empty. China has become a, a net importer of crude oil since 1993 and of coal in 2008. And nowadays, China is the largest importer of crude oil, the biggest consumer and producer of coal, and the biggest producer of electricity, and the, the number one emitter of the greenhouse gas. So you can see uh, the fact that the Dependency on domestic uh, resources not, is no use. We must uh, begin to import resources from outside because we don't have enough. So I, uh, I really don't think uh, the, ta uh, the target of the policy is uh, energy security. It's still on the economic cost. It's focused on the benefit. In fact, uh, the choice is dependent on the cost assessment. The, the coal is the cheapest energy resources to utilize. If neglect, uh, neglecting the environmental and the social cost, uh, but this has uh, caused uh, uh, many serious problems. The extremely serious smog surprised nearly all of the country since the, uh, 2010. Uh, causing urgent stress to human uh, health. Just uh, before I came to Washington, D.C., a uh, very serious smog has spread the northeast China uh, provinces. The PM2.5 has surpassed 1,000. Do you know uh, the criteria of the, U, uh, the UN is uh, the criteria is less uh, 50, but we are more than 1,000. The serious is Shenyang City is 1,400. Uh, it's very serious. It's, I think it's just uh, the same of the Hitler gas room. So uh, this threats of the uh, environmental and health, according to one study, has caused a five-year reduction in life expectancy in North provinces than those in uh, South China. Uh, regarding this uh, contrast to those, uh, those people in uh, developed countries. So morally, we must pay our attention to the trade-off between the dependency on coal and the cleaner energy, maybe with higher cost, 
the exhausting of domestic resources is leading to non-security. Dependency on high-polluting coal destroys the health of people, and of course, it is not security. But can we have a better and a cleaner choice, uh, choice? If we think about the impacts to the environment and the society, the, co the cost of the coal is higher than uh, other alternative energy, such as uh, natural gas, even ethanol, methanol, and uh, uh, renewables, including the PV, the wind power, the wind power, uh, and so on. The mining of coal has damaged acres of arable land and villages, damaging uh, surface and uh, underground water resources. And uh, the transforming process from coal to electricity has caused most of the enormous emission of the greenhouse gas and uh, acid rain in most of the country. Even we have lost many lives during the mining process. Uh, just this week, the Paris uh, uh, attack may sacrifice uh, about uh, 160 lives, but you, do you know how many lives has, sacrificed, has been sacrificed in China coal mining? I think more more than, uh, it, uh, we can uh, count hundreds of thousands of people died in the, in the process. So uh, can we have a better and a cleaner choice? I think the answer is yes. It's probably that fortunately China has come to the peak of energy consumption. The process of quickly uh, urbanization has come to its end. Nowadays, more than 60% uh, of population uh, de facto live in cities and towns. They already have their ho houses, big or less big. According to the statistics in 2012, the average house uh, square of urban population is uh, 32.9. Uh, square meters. So the demand for construction materials whose uh, production process needs uh, much energy began to wither. In fact, the energy consumption by three uh, industries of the steel and iron, uh, the uh, construction materials and, uh, and uh, aluminum occupied uh, about 30% of the total uh, energy uh, expenditure. Uh, this is the data of 2013. In addition to the indirect uh, consumption, these uh, three industries consumes about 35% of the TPE. So if the demand for the uh, house uh, began to drop, the energy consumption and the GHG emission will also decrease. You have seen the uh, phenomenon of the economic uh, depress in China. Uh, the growth rate has dropped to about 6%. This is very, uh, very lower in contrast to the history. So this is not uh, because of the economic uh, cycle. 
it must be happen because we have we already have enough houses, and we how, uh, have already uh, enough vehicles. M most of the uh, Chinese family have their own vehicles and uh, their houses. So uh, the job must be happen. This uh, this gives China the opportunity to reduce the share of coal in energy mix and have a cleaner uh, portfolio of energy. So what an op uh, optimized energy portfolio we can have? Uh, in China, we have begun to adjust the energy structure according to the uh, strategy plan to 2020 uh, of the energy mix. We have uh, set a target to reduce the coal uh, to uh, reduce the share uh, to uh, less than uh, 60, 62%. And uh, we uh, need to raise the share of natural gas and uh, uh, hydropower and other uh, renewables. In the economically available techno uh, technological uh, scenarios, we, have, we can have many choices of the energy. We can import more natural gas through both pipeline and LNG ship. We can produce more natural gas domestically in the case of opening uh, the upper stream, as private firms can have a lower cost than SOEs. We can also produce more unconventional natural gas, such as the shale gas, coal bed medicine, and uh, acid gas, tent gas, and so on. We may also have uh, produce and uh, import methanol and uh, ethanol as liquid fuel, and uh, import cleaner coal from Australia, Indonesia, Mongolia, and Russia, even USA and Canada, because uh, according to the uh, quality of the coal, uh, the Chinese coal is, uh, is more dirty because it contain more sulfur and uh, uh, phosphor. Some experts also suggest nuclear power, but I don't think it's a priority. In the background of visiting, uh, visiting demand, above all, I suggest a smart uh, energy system which can better balance the cost and the environmental impacts. The key is that it can transit uh, among different kinds of fuel. It should be a more uh, flexible system when the cost or emission parameter of one flow changes. The system can transfer easily from one flow to another. And a smart grid is a familiar example which can integrate the wind power, PV, or traditional power into one system and assess the generation freely according to the condition uh, changes. Uh, another example is the engine uh, redesign and reconstruction is also welcome in to transform among different uh, fuels, such as the, the gasoline and uh, diesel, uh, ethanol, methanol, or or electricity. So uh, what policy indeed 
uh, to uh, make the energy uh, transition. I think the policy is only the regulation. Nowadays, the regulation in China is not so good. Uh, we, can, we have uh, the, uh, the laws and the standards and the regulation, but they are not well done in, in the practice. For the transition, the policy needed is only the, uh, the practice of the regulation. The regulation on environment, on health and security. The government can set the standards and can open the entry for different kinds of energy and technologies. And the industries will decide the, the technical rules stricter the regulation and the more uh, optimize the energy portfolio we can have. So uh, I remember uh, the author uh, has mentioned the revolution of energy. We are facing a new revolution. This revolution is driven by the demand and by the uh, demand for uh, cleaner atmosphere. We, we cannot live in this uh, environment for a, long, a longer time. If so, we will lose ma uh, many lives. And we can see the reduction of the life expectancy in, in China. Can you imagine a country with very fast economic growth rate, but also with uh, a reduction in the life expectancy? It's, it's, it's horrible, it's very horrible. So we must need a revolution on the demand, on the supply and the te technology and on the regulation system. In the past 20 years, China is the fastest growing consumer uh, of energy. But in the next 10 years, we will be the fastest reducing of energy consumption and the greenhouse uh, uh, gas emission. Many people don't, uh, don't believe this, I think, because they have uh, a, a strong uh, memory of, the China, of China's fast-growing uh, uh, fast growth rate and uh, the energy expenditure. But if you think about the background, I just mentioned of the, the drop of the, the housing demand. In this year, uh, the demand for the new house has dropped very quickly. And if we don't, uh, if the government don't pull down all the, uh, all the buildings, we will not have a stronger demand for the new houses. So I think there must be some uh, some drop and even negative growth rate in the future, especially on the energy uh, expenditure. So, and uh, China will also be the biggest market for alternative energy, including the conventional and the unconventional uh, natural gas, uh, liquid energy, including the tight oil and uh, the ethanol, methanol, and so on. 
and we will be the biggest market of the electricity vehicles. We have enough vehicles, that's true, but the vehicles in China is not so good. We will have more uh, good uh, vehicles, more, uh, even luxury uh, vehicles in China. And uh, maybe many people uh, think China will be uh, will import more uh, crude oil in the future, but I think the crude oil uh, consumption in China also come to its peak. Why? Because after uh, the the uh, the fast growth rate of the the energy demand uh, in the past the. Uh, the main uh, demand is focused on coal and other uh, materials such as the, the iron coal and uh, uh, other coals. After the faster growing, the, uh, the demand for all, all these uh, materials has dropped. So uh, the demand for transportation also, uh, also dropped. Uh, you know, uh, in the past, we always used the highway truck to transport these materials uh, and this coal. So, uh, in the future, we don't need this demand. So, uh, in the background, we have enough vehicles, and uh, we will raise the technological uh, efficiency of the uh, vehicles and trucks. The demand for uh, petroleum must come its peak, even drop in the future. So uh, this is good for for China and for the world. And uh, we, the the biggest evolution uh, evolution is the tran uh, transition transform uh, transit from uh, coal to natural gas to other uh, alternatives. I think this. The areas we can cooperate, we can co uh, import more technology on the fracking, the shale gas, and other unconventional energy uh, gas or petroleum or liquid and uh, elect uh, electrical vehicles. We have many areas to cooperate, especially on the uh, technology and the market, and even the strategy. Uh, so we will uh, welcome you to uh, to China and to our uh, forum uh, co-organized with uh, with uh, uh, Mr. Galuft. Uh, we will also uh, held it on every June, maybe next uh, next June in Beijing. Uh, we we uh, like to invite you to have more discuss on this transition. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your attention. Glad to be here and talk to uh, about the China energy future, particularly is uh, Chinese security and the pollution. And good morning, everybody, because we still have uh, two minutes to the moon. And 
thanks uh, to invite me to come over. And for, for China and U.S. and cooperation in the climate change and energy environment issues, and it has been done very well uh, in the future. Personally, I strongly believe we're going well, smoothly, and productively. And today, I would like to talk about the China uh, energy future. And by 2014, uh, uh, China consumed about uh, 4.26 billion uh, uh, energy. Uh, that is uh, co-equivalent. And 66% from coal, and 70% from oil, and 5% from natural gas, and other non-fossil fuel is uh, about 11. And so for China, of course, uh, uh, energy security still is uh, in the top priority for Chinese leaders and for Chinese government policies. And from these slides, and you can see the China in, by the 2014 is uh, about the import oil accounts, 60% uh, of total uh, oil consumption. And for coal, is about 8%. And for natural gas, about uh, 33%. But in the future, and I guess, I guess by 2030, if oil uh, independence is about 70, I will be not surprised. Um, because that is a China we are going on, because domestic production is uh, still limited. And for coal Im importation, will slow down or will reduce significantly. But for natural gas, will more rapidly than oil um, for the importation. <laughs> And why so far is in China, if we're talking about the Chinese leaders' priorities um, for the climate change, environment, and security, and I will say the order has been changed. The pollution has been put into the first. And from these slides, you can see um, for coal consumption and cause uh, many environment problems. And for mercury, 80% and from coal. And for pollutants, and you can see 93 and for SO2 and uh, 76 and for NOx and the uh, uh, primary uh, PM 2.5 is about the 63 and for secondary and PM 2.5 is about 56. Of course, this is not enough, and uh, uh, but for the CO2 emission is account 80 percent uh, of the CO2 emission from energy sector. And how about others for the solid waste? is about 45%. For the water pollution, is about 40% in the industry sector. So coal causes a lot of problems. And that is why that causes many public health. Based on our studies, if we account oil together and other fossil fuels, and annually have 1.1 million Chinese people will die earlier. Or premature dies, and but only coal itself is about the seventy. Uh, it's about seven hundred thousand people uh, premature dies, and so that means every year that costs a lot of uh, social costs. And the left slide, that left the map, you can see based on the coal uh, uh, intensity um, per square uh, per square kilometers. And you can see the coal consumption in the coastal mid, uh, east area and in the nor northern China. And but if we have another slide in the right hand side, and you can see the PM 2.5 pollutions um, from the satellites, 
emergency. Uh, emerging and this map is uh, very consistent. And so if we like to improve the public health, we, we have to reduce the coal consumption. What, what is a coal uh, cost, the social cost? And totally, we estimate uh, 2012 and at least is uh, $50 per ton um, for the environment lost. If at climate change, that is about $75 per ton. So this is a lot. How about coal price? Coal price now is only 65. So that coal price is less than the total social cost. And so that is a lot. And we have to uh, talk to the decision maker. If we make decision to produce and consume more coal, you have to account the total social cost. And that is a uh, you know, tw uh, 2012, that is about 3.7% uh, of GDP actually is waste. So that's a, that is a very impressive. So how about 2020? Our goal is to uh, let the coal consumption down from the 66% right now to the 57%. That's 8%. Is it possible? Yes. From other countries, and particularly is from the European countries, you can see every year actually they drop 2.5% in the 1970s. So that is, uh, for China, is only every year is only 1.6%. So I think that is, uh, uh, that is where uh, Chinese uh, can, uh, government can, can, done, uh, can do it. And this is uh, improve a lot of benefit for public health, environment protection, climate change, or others. So that is a very significant. How about China? The target um, for, the, for the air quality, you can see by 2020, and we like to see the nationwide is uh, 45 milligrams per kilometers. And so compared to right now, that is uh, more than 70, 72. And in the future, uh, we like to see uh, 2050 reach the 15%. But US, most the country, uh, cities is around uh, 20 to 25, still not meet WHO, the standards. The standards is a rain line is a 10 myogram per kilometers. So how about the LA? LA now is only something like uh, 35. Uh, so by the uh, 2030, and we like to see Chinese, all the cities uh, will reach the 30 uh, myograms uh, per cubic meters. So how about the coal cap? Now we, uh, uh, we are propose the coal cap to the Chinese government. We think coal cap is quite important. And from this, you can see by the 2020, we like to see is uh, ab about 4.2, uh, 420 million ton can be saved uh, by 2020. And in the future, by the 2030, and because of Paris, even though we have uh, you know, a good inspection and can have a very, pro, uh, very good uh, change, uh, uh, that, uh, le legally binding document on climate change. But still, the gap for the CO2 emissions still is increasing. Uh, so we like to see in the future, we like to drop uh, for our coal cap at beginning, and that is a blue line. You can see after 2030, we'll drop to two degrees uh, scenarios, and in that case, that by
by the 2050 and Chinese uh, emissions by, uh, by uh, in terms of the capita is only two ton to three ton of CO2 emissions. So that's meet uh, a national demand. So by 2020, if we can save 420 million ton of oil, what is the benefit uh, we can get? For instance, we can reduce 980 uh, million ton of the CO2, and also we can reduce the uh, seven, uh, seven one thousand people can be avoid to die, and also uh, we can create uh, 150 green jobs. So that is a co-benefit. Uh, actually, is uh, quite large. So we're talking about in the future about oil and natural gas, and we think oil and for for China will reach the peak is about uh, 2030 around 2030 and then decline. And for the for the coal and will decline very rapidly by 2050. Uh, so far is a 66 percent of to in the total energy mix. By the 2050, that is only account 20 percent, less than 20 percent. That means also is a big than the uh, U.S. total coal consumption right now. And for the natural gas, will increase. So by 2050, the oil will account 15 percent, or the natural gas we count 15 percent. The oil is account 12 percent. So how about non-fossil fuel? Non-fossil fuel we account 52%. But based on this scenario study, uh, compared to other studies in the China, most aggressive one, our scenario study is uh, very conservative. But so far, we can see that non-fossil fuel will account 52% uh, by 2050. So after 2030, um, for the oil and gas and is a uh, uh, one natural gas will uh, increasing, uh, oil still decreasing. So in the future, we will see the security and still is uh, in the top of energy uh, policy. Um, but they are compared to the climate change, uh, climate change will have a, a higher order than the security. So this is uh, give you uh, some idea is about the percentage in the total energy mix and so in this case, we would like to see the coal definitely will, uh, uh, will be reduced, and this creates a problem for the security. But the question is uh, increase the renewable and the nuclear, and that will uh, play a major role. And so in this case, the importance of the energy security is uh, maintained the same. And gradually, in the 2050, uh, that will become a uh, 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 is in the, not in the priority, but still is a top energy concern. Why this is quite important, and we will talk about what is the Chinese government, they think about what is the new energy security. For the natural gas, that is a challenge um, for the China. We like to consume more natural gas to replace the coal. And from these slides, you can see the natural gas, the price, Price is a is a blue one, and that's a, uh, uh, that's is oil price is a, when the coal price is a decline, the oil price also decline faster. 
but the natural gas, the gap between the natural gas and coal is become large. So that's in, that means if we try to use natural gas to replace coal, it seems is a very challenge. So we hope the Chinese central government can produce or can uh, formulate a new policy to stimulate uh, to use the more natural gas. So that's a price is the first. How can you do it? So that is a challenge. And I, I would like to answer your question later on. And from these slides, you can see uh, by the power sector, why oil will be reduced very significantly. And we will see in the power sector, uh, more natural gas uh, resources uh, uh, and uh, renewable resources will provide a more uh, electricity. So that's why uh, that is for the EV electric vehicles. And in the future, you will see that in the transportation sector and uh, the consumption in the, in the transportation sector will reduce. And for China, now they have a many stimulate or very incentive policy to encourage the customer to buy the electricity car. And so they have uh, some cap um, for all the major or mega cities. And they say how many electricity cars will produce. And they take one section of the highway all of these uh, uh, gas station will move out. They use electricity uh, station and to uh, to uh, have a many uh, ch uh, electricity charge post put there. And now Chinese government put a lot of uh, uh, R&D resources to do the a very quick uh, you know charge um, for the electricity car. Uh, at least they, uh, they say that uh, their goal is in the couple of years. And maybe is uh, under the 10 minutes, and you can charge, and the car can run the 600 kilometers or one uh, 1,000 kilometers long. So in this case, um, customer will prefer the electricity car. So for the capacity, I think is uh, uh, including the pollutions or uh, energy security and the climate change, and the system have to be changed for the government. Uh, systems. First is establish the Ministry of the Energy and the Climate Change. But so far, we only have a, a National Energy Bureau that is not strong enough. And they have a limitation because they are under jurisdiction, uh, are under the uh, management of the NDRC. And so another is establish independent National Energy Regulatory Commission. But so far, we are we don't have, uh, not like uh, in U.S., we have a FERC, and we have a, a regulatory, uh, a nuclear regulatory commission, but in China, regulatory, uh, nuclear uh, regulatory commission is under Ministry of the Protection. The power is very limited. So we like to see all these together, and if we don't have any of these change in the government system, it's quite difficult and to deal with the challenge in the future in the energy supply, uh, security, and uh, climate change. And we can see the global energy demand growth is shift to China. The landscape has been changed. So our global governance has to be changed too, according to it. Otherwise, we will uh, uh, not catch up at, at these challenges because we can see 65% of energy will move on to the Asia. And uh, and for the India, based on the IA uh, prediction uh, in the energy uh, out, uh, outlook, and they say by 
2040, the India will surpa surpass the China become number one for the energy consumption countries. So Asia become a, a energy engine and energy consumption in the world. So for IEA, uh, India and China now still is the observer, but not have any power uh, is, a, uh, is a members. And so we think is that we like to establish all this Asia, we call the uh, Asia Energy Security and Cooperation Agency. And so uh, we propose this idea. And that is quite important. This new agency is open, cooperative, and uh, like to work others, but not only focus on the energy security, but we like to do more is about the clean te technology and clean energy. So in the future, if we think IA plus Asia Energy Cooperation and Security Agency, that's provide a foundation for the global energy governance. Thank you very much. I'm going to just uh, sit here if it's okay with, with everybody. Uh, that was a terrific um, presentation. I've been following Dr. Young's work for years, and as you can see by the presentation, how great it was. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, we had a very good um, you know, deep dive and quantitative analysis uh, of, of China's current energy structure and where it might be transitioning. But I think you can't understand what's going on in China, especially in the energy and environmental side, without understanding the underlying political context. And uh, this is what I want to spend most of my time talking about. Uh, I think it's the most political uh, we've seen in China in about a generation. And a lot of this is actually affecting uh, the energy and environmental side in terms of politics, politics, uh, policies, politics, and also some, some of the regulatory changes that are needed in China. Um, I think it's important to understand that the energy story cannot be disaggregated from the massive economic transition and reforms that the Chinese are trying to undertake through 2020. It was set up at, at the third plenum uh, in, in 2013 by, by President Xi. Uh, and, and as we all know, China's economic model dictates its energy profile. So to the extent that the Chinese actually succeeds massively in its rebalancing uh, uh, effort, it's actually going to have a huge impact on how its energy profile comes out. But it's extremely political because anytime you have a big economic transition, you have economic actors or so-called vested interests that the Chinese talk about a lot. And that, that, that inherently makes this whole project a lot more political uh, than it seems. And as we all know, there's been a huge anti-corruption campaign in China right now. And a lot of that, I, I, I would argue and I will hypothesize that there's no coincidence that it's hitting a lot of the energy side first. And I'll, make, and I'll try to make that case throughout my presentation. I, I'll try to be very brief so we have more time for uh, questions and answers. So what, what is the uh, fundamental problem that they're trying to solve? Uh, we heard about uh, uh, over the weekend you had this air apocalypse incident again in the city of Shenyang in, in, in northeast China, 1400 PM, PM 2.5 off the charts. Uh, the consulate in Shenyang couldn't even measure it uh, because it was just way too high. Uh, so, you know, but instead of me telling you what it is, let me just show you. This is a picture of Beijing in 2013 taken by a friend of mine, Bill Bishop, who some of you might know. He has, he has recently relocated to Washington, D.C. after 10 years uh, in Beijing. This is outside his window in downtown Beijing uh, in the Central Business District on a blue sky day, as they call it in China. It's great. Uh, and uh, this is the same view on what's called an Air Apocalypse Day. 
uh, some of you may, may have seen this picture, but it's, a, it's the exact same view, and I, I've given, I've shown this pictures at other talks, and most people don't quite believe it's the same view. Um, but, you know, that looks like a scene out of Blade Runner on your right. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, this is kind of what Shenyang looked like over the weekend, perhaps even worse. Visibility, a couple hundred feet, that's about it. People wear masks uh, and so on. So this, this happened during the year, I, I guess you, you could even call it the year of the air apocalypse in China, which was 2013. And uh, uh, that really produced a political, uh, 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 bottom-up political reaction to it because people live there, people all breathe the same air, and in fact, all the politicians live in Beijing and they also breathe the same air. It, it became evident that air is a, a air is sort of a a, a, a a public good, obviously, but I think it became much more political because of the fact that politicians were. Right, this was happening right in the capital, and it was a huge blight on China generally. So this became a political justification. The so-called war on pollution has become a way to accelerate the economic transition and the, en and the energy transition that people have been talking about, like Dr. Yang. And I'll, I'll, I will try to go into more details about what that entails and what the politics are. Obviously, we know coal is the big problem, right? Um, uh, as Dr. Young said, they, you know, uh, one of their proposals is to cap coal, but just look at China when it compares to every other uh, country, including uh, certain uh, BRIC countries. Uh, it's just way, it's just a huge outlier. Uh, obviously, Brazil has more hydro, and Russia has more natural gas, and so on. But basically, coal is the story. You got to squeeze that yellow bar much smaller, and that's what what it's about, and that's that's going to help solve a lot of the air pollution problems. But but remember, air pollution is simply a justification too, to kind of make the transition go faster. Um, and the coal story is essentially an industry story, right? China has undergone hyper-industrialization over the last 15, 20 years, uh, uh, you know, that the world has never seen. It's unprecedented. I don't have the stat here, but I think from 2011 and in 2014, China used more cement than the entire than the United States did for the entire uh, 20th century. So in three years, they used more cement. In 100 years, in the United States, because again, you know, we built out in the 50s through the 70s when we had urbanization, but there, uh, you know, the scale in China is so much bigger. Um, and this is what you get, right? China is China makes basically uh, all the major commodities uh, in the world, and uh, sometimes they try to dump in, in the uh, United States and we slap tariffs on them, but that's because they have an overcapacity, uh, especially with the economy slowing down to 6 to 6.5% these days. Uh, you can't just be making 50% of the world's steel or you know, nearly 50% of the world's aluminum and so on. So this is an unsustainable economic model that has an underlying energy uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a profile that supports this, and it, it's a coal-driven energy profile. <clears throat> so um, I want to illustrate my story about politics and the interaction with politics and environment in, with two specific provinces, subnational. One is this province, Hebei, and, and, and the next one is Shanxi. Hebei, um, anybody venture a guess what it has in common with the, with the European Union? Just shout, no? Okay. Well, so it, it produced basically the same amount of steel as the entire European Union. Uh, and you can see the numbers there staggering. Uh, so, uh, you know, th that quote on the bottom, that's a quote by a local official in Hebei. Basically, if you ranked global steel top producers, China is number one without Hebei. Uh, China with Hebei itself is number two in the world. This tiny city on the east, I don't have a, do I have a pointer. Well, anyway, this tiny city called Tangshan 
basically uh, uh, in the southeast part of the province is, is, is it will be number three, the city itself. And I just uh, saw a recent stat in 2014, it produced, that city itself produced more steel than the United States combined. So um, that is, the white out part is Beijing, okay? So you can see where the pollution is coming from in the neighboring province uh, because that's, that's where all the steel making is. And, and um, so this, this province alone is, is, is incredible in terms of steel output. You know, if, if you recall, Mao Zedong back in the 1950s wanted a great leap forward in, in steel. Well, he got it just 50 years later, and uh, its name is Hebei province. Uh, it's right there next to Beijing, and all that blows over. So you can't deal with the pollution without dealing with Hebei province. It's just not going to happen. You can't just simply focus it on, on Beijing itself. And it's a problem politically because, like all steel-based or, or one-industry one provinces, you got to deal with the fallout if you want to transition from this industry to something else that's less energy-intensive, less polluting. You're going to have to shut down a lot of steel plants. And uh, in fact, just over the weekend, they shut down a huge one, and there were uh, about several thousand people got laid off, and many were threatened to jump off the roof uh, of the steel plant in Tangshan, the, 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 the city that, that made more steel than the United States last year. So what have they been doing at the top? President Xi Jinping has, of course, been conducting one of the most pervasive, ferocious anti-corruption campaigns uh, that we've seen in probably 20, 25 years. Nobody anticipated that it was going to be this severe, last this long, and, and, and go so deep. And uh, so these are uh, two of the top, top, uh, top uh, so-called anti-corruption tigers. Uh, they're they're high-level politicians that were, that, that, were, uh, that were felled in the recent anti-corruption campaign. This was earlier this year. And of course, they happen to be in Hebei province. Um, so, you know, uh, this is a big steel producing industry. So, uh, you know, the Chinese system is obviously different than ours. Uh, if you, uh, you know, they keep on talking about vested interests, well, steel clearly is a big vested interest. And it's not pleasant when you want to transition. You got to shut down all these plants and you got to tell people that they're out of jobs. And politicians, obviously, when, they, when they're focused on GDP growth, uh, as one of the key metrics for, uh, for promotion, they don't want to shut down steel plants. They don't really necessarily want to transition. Think about Pittsburgh way back when. Did they really want to transition out of steel? Probably not. It was probably very politically difficult. It's a similar story in China. So what do you do with vested interests that don't want to actually do, uh, that, that don't want to change, that want to preserve the status quo? Well, you arrest them in an anti-corruption campaign. And this is one... Th th this is steel in Hebei, so this is one illustration. There's, there, there are a couple others that I want to go through to make my case. The second province is Shanxi. It's sort of the West Virginia of China. It's, it's, it's coal country, okay? So uh, it, it's, it produces 960 million tons of coal in that province alone. Uh, it's a quarter of national production and 80% and of exports to the rest of the, rest of the country. Uh, and guess what? More than a dozen officials have been arrested over the last couple years in in that province, including very high-level officials. Uh, and, 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 and also, guess what? Uh, not coincidentally, the coal industry right now has been clobbered. As we've seen, prices have plummeted, uh, exports are down. Uh, China, you know, uh, China has basically had a very uh, an abysmal time in the coal industry, and partly is because uh, there's, uh, the anti-corruption campaign has swept into that particular sector. Um, so I would again argue there's a clear logic between what they're doing on the political side to get rid of some of these vested interests 
to to basically make things move a little bit faster. Not to mention, uh, not to mention that uh, uh, you know uh, the governor of this province happens to be uh, the son of a former premier Lee Pun, and so there's also a possibly other political angle there. But obviously, obviously, I think the best politics and policies are generally twofers. So it's not purely for you know economically motivated, but there is an economic uh, a manifestation of what they're trying to do politically, especially on the energy side. And the third example I want to give is uh, anybody saw the uh, documentary Under the Dome by any chance? So I will briefly talk about Under the Dome. Uh, Under the Dome was a it went on Chinese internet uh, for about a weekend before they shut it down because it had about 200 million views over, over two or three days. Uh, and uh, it's still up on YouTube, and I would encourage you to see it. Um, but, what, but what they did was uh, this was a former CCTV anchor, uh, Chai Jing, and she was sort of, she was sort of the, uh, uh, the host and, and, and the person behind the video, supposedly. And, uh, and uh, she, um, she basically made a video that, it, that looks and feels a bit like Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. Uh, the idea was to kind of use that kind of uh, uh, video model to kind of really push, push the uh, push the envelope on environment, and people were very surprised that, that such a video was a, even shown for over a weekend. Uh, normally, this kind of stuff would be pretty much censored, uh, and it, and she went very far in the video. She attacked the big oil companies, national oil companies, specifically CNPC, also Sinopec, and she attacked them for not willing to move to higher fuel standards or cheating on fuel standards. And that was one way for them. Again, that was a vested interest. They didn't want to move. These are some of the three, uh, the, the three biggest oil companies in China. CNPC hires about one and a half million people on its payroll. So it's a, it's, it's a huge company. Uh, uh, and uh, it, it's clearly a very entrenched interest. And obviously, it, it didn't want to move on certain things. So it, again, at the end, it was very, very political. And here, I have to tell a story. You know. A lot of people thought this was sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, there was a lot of rumors that this was clearly had pretty high political backing. And um, interestingly enough, and I have to tell this story again to underscore the point, is I had a chat with uh, uh, a China correspondent from the Huffington Post. He was the only foreigner, or he was the first foreigner that got to ask a question in the National People's Congress, which was a few weeks right after this video came out. You know, they, they all screen the questions. They, they, they usually tell one or two foreigners to ask the question. And he had cleared three questions. And I heard this personally from him. He, he had wrote down a story about this particular film. He wanted to ask Premier Li Keqiang about it. And uh, he thought there was no way they were going to let him ask that question. There was no way. There was too politically sensitive in front of everybody at the NPC press conference. Once a year, the Premier gives it. Well... He had three questions. The first one, the, the first one that definitely asked the one about under the dome, definitely ask about it. So he did, and primarily they, they knew what was coming. He he didn't really answer the question directly, but he made the point about how you know about entrenched interests and you got to push forward. So they made the point via a foreign journalist. So it, there's something there that, that that's connected to, to the underlying politics right now of what's going on. And in fact, CNPC, uh, I think. Uh, something like 30, 35 people have been arrested or investigated within the company for corruption. So again, it's, a, it's, it's another area that's been hit a lot under the anti-corruption. So I, I find it very hard to believe that these are all mere coincidences. And just to show you, I mean, the three biggest politicians, they went after it right away. The guy on the left, 
the highest level politicians they've ever gone after. He was a former public security bureau, uh, public security czar. He was the number nine seat on the standing committee, but he was extremely powerful. He rose through the oil sector, uh, in particular CMPC. So there was a lot of, uh, of his patronage network was all in the oil sector. And that was, this case took two years to unravel, but they got him. Uh, he's, now un, uh, he's now arrested and never to be heard from again. The guy in the middle, Ling Jihua, uh, he was former chief of staff to the former president, but got in a controversial scandal that kind of ended his career. But he has a lot of ties to Shanxi and the coal industry. And they also got him very recently. Uh, again, when a very high level person in the former administration. Uh, the third one on uh, far right, Adil Tianan, he was the former head of the National Energy Administration. Uh, again, that was the sort of de facto energy ministry if China were to have an energy ministry under the NDRC. Um, he was, again, fallen for corruption. And, uh, and, and guess what? China is now moving forward on energy pricing reforms. Um, you know, I think there's a case to be made that China is, you know, they're going out. If you look at some of the reforms on the economic side, energy uh, pricing reforms, uh, pro, you know, uh, and other types of uh, reforms, uh, they're basically going after the three ends, uh, NDRC, National Development and Reform Commission, because they have the pricing power. If you, if you let the energy pricing be market, then what does the NDRC do when it comes to pricing? They will, be, they will, not, they will no longer have that authority. Number two is the NEA, as we saw, with getting rid of the former head of uh, the NEA. And number three is NOCs, the national oil companies, to get them to behave in a way that, that would serve the energy and environmental goals of the top leadership. So again, uh, this is not a foolproof case, but I think there's a lot of things going on, on the political side that really serves uh, the economic agenda, particularly on the energy and environmental side, because you can't get these policies and you can't execute them really well unless the po politics are aligned, uh, because these are very tough, huge reforms, uh, and you need to have, and you need to be able to uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, really use the political instrument a little bit. And in the Chinese system, uh, obviously, there's not exactly, you know, legal institutions, independent institutions, or courts. So what the top leadership seems to have settled on is using this anti-corruption campaign as, as a way to get rid of some of these vested interests, in my view. And why do they keep on doing it? Because it's also very popular. Xi Jinping is a very popular president, and uh, his anti-corruption campaign is extremely popular with the average Chinese. This is the latest Pew Research uh, uh, conducted with average Chinese citizens, and uh, you know, pollution is number one, and all the, you, you can go down a list. So he's got a lot of popular mandate in doing this, and uh, I don't see it you know, uh, dissipating anytime soon or even weakening anytime soon because this serves several goals at, at the same time. Uh, and uh, I think she just has to say, you know, I'm a populist president and the, uh, and, and, and the Chinese public supports me in this endeavor, so I'm going to keep on doing it, despite the fact that it's also potentially very politically risky because he's doing something that, that we haven't seen literally in about 20, 25 years. And it may be having some impact. Uh, I, 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 know, I know, you know, and it may be temporary. This is a, a, a piece of data I pulled from uh, some Greenpeace analysis and the National Bureau of Statistics. Basically, you're seeing that the growth of coal and GDP have diverged a little bit in recent years. Uh, that could be temporary in part because of the current decline in the coal industry. But I think it's interesting to see that, uh, you, know, um, um, uh, you know, obviously with slower growth, too, you're going to just see a le less energy-intensive uh, type of an economy. But if this persists, 
then it could uh, uh, suggest uh, that some of the political maneuvering, if they keep on doing this, and they keep on making sure that the coal industry behaves in a way that would serve their broader goals on the, uh, on the, the energy and environment, we could see this trend persist, and that would actually help uh, facilitate and accelerate the goal to, to, to either peak coal or, 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 or peak oil. So uh, I'm going to end my presentation right there. But I just wanted to really pr provide, I think, uh, what I think is a really important political context in what's happening in China right now, which I think if you don't understand the linkages, it's very hard to kind of get grapple with what is actually happening in China and why are they doing what they're doing today. Thanks. Thanks very much for three terrific presentations. Um, how much time do we have for questions and answers? Uh, should we go about to okay, great. L let me just start with a couple, and then I'll, I'll throw it up to the crowd. Um, uh, the, the, to the stories you're telling about the air pollution in China are horrific, and the picture that Damien showed is remarkable. Those of us who travel to China see this all the time. Um, the report of 1,400 PM 2.5 in Shenyang is just remarkable. Um, we have a lot of expertise at the table. How quickly can China reduce those figures? How quickly can China move towards air quality um, that's significantly better than it is today? Mr. Young. Yeah, I would like to answer your question. And first is the Chinese uh, growth is a slow down a little bit. And so that is a help to reduce the energy uh, consumption, also help the pollution uh, increasing. So, and second, and I think is uh, uh, recently, and China actually reduced the coal cap, uh, reduced the coal consumption, and in the uh, uh, provinces like Beijing, Shenyang, Tianjin, is uh, more than 20 uh, provinces, and China total is about the 31 provinces. Uh, out of the 31, and 20 uh, provinces have their coal cap. And so that's a uh, Co-reduce very significantly. We have a data to show uh, recently three years, and you can see the 74 uh, the major cities uh, they are PM 2.5 and reduce significantly. So that is why we like to see by the by the 2025 China can reach the 35 microgram per kilometers, and that is reach the WHO first phase and standards for the PM 2.5. Any other thoughts, Damien? I'll just comment quickly. I, I, I think these scenarios are certainly plausible, but um, I just came back from China about a month ago, and uh, I think there is currently also just a lot of concern of the downward pressure on the economy. And uh, as we know, uh, you know, the, the very simplistic thinking is the trade-off between growth versus tackling the environment. And I think there continues to be, as, at this current point, a lot of fear of whether uh, uh, you know going all in on the environment and the energy transition is going to come at a huge environmental, uh, huge economic cost, given uh, you know nobody really even thinks China is growing at six point five percent or six point nine percent. So uh, that debate, uh, that was the sense I got in, in, in Beijing anyway. That debate is is very intense, and uh, and uh, you know you, uh, you don't want a situation where in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine where they announced another six hundred billion dollars stimulus. And it basically all went to infrastructure and steel and all the heavy industries that I talked about here. Uh, that would set back some of the uh, some of the recent gains because of the slowdown. Great. Uh, one more question, and then I throw it out to the audience. Um, I'll say as an American, in, in my opinion, 
we've done a lot of things in the past several decades n not very well as a country. But one thing we've done very well is clean up the air in our cities. It, it's really quite remarkable how much better the air quality is here. I lived in Los Angeles briefly in the early 1980s, uh, and I, I worked in a skyscraper for a month, bef literally before I ever saw the mountains there. Um, and although Los Angeles's air today is much, it still needs some improvement, it's much, much cleaner. So uh, is this area of air pollution, is this also an area that the United States and China can be working well together on? Are there potential for cooperation um, beyond what we're already doing? Of course, the two governments are already working in this area, but, but can we be doing more to work together as two countries to help China clean up its air? And any thoughts on that? Mr. Mr. Liu. Yeah. Thank you for this question. And uh, your willing is to help us. <laughs> yes. uh, I think the biggest question is about what caused the serious smog in China. Uh, is it the same or the different with the Los Angeles or, 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 or London City? As, uh, I think it's some different. <coughs> But you can still do some to help us. Uh, the biggest reason is uh, it's not the coal, it's not the, the petroleum, but the combination of the of both. Uh, in the past, uh, Beijing has more power plants uh, using a coal, a coal fire power plants. <coughs> but at that days, there's no smog in Beijing. Uh, but today, uh, Beijing has less uh, coal fire power plants but we have more smog, even in the no, no wind days. If, uh, just mentioned by Damia, uh, Beijing uh, pollutants come from Tangshan, from Hebei province and Shanxi province, but how can you explain uh, the smog in no wind, uh, no wind days? So it's a, comb a combination uh, from the petroleum and the coal. It's very uh, the, uh, the combination. In the summer, we also have the uh, the smog. So it's not from the coal because we, we didn't uh, use the coal in summer days. So uh, I think uh, the the reason is the combination of the coal and the petroleum. Uh, we we uh, we have uh, we are the biggest uh, uh, market of the vehicles. So. Uh, the smoke is not come from the vehicles, it's come from the petroleum. The, pe uh, the sulfide, the, the sulfide content in China is much higher than in USA. So if you want to help us, I think it's useful to help us to, to raise the quality of the petroleum products, especially the diesel and the, the, the gasoline. Uh, according to the uh, assessment of the sandal uh, pack, maybe this will cost uh, uh, about uh, maybe some five, so, uh, uh, five, uh, $50 billion is a big market. Uh, we need to change the equipment and the industrial facility of, of the whole industries. And we, uh, because most of the uh, industrial capability of the petroleum uh, is be, uh, it's built uh, 20 years ago. Uh, less advanced technology rules. We 
we must uh, change slides. So th this will be the market. And the, the second area for hybrid is about the transition. We can transit from the petroleum or, or coal to some other alternatives. If, uh, if the coal or petroleum reduced, uh, the smoke will reduce. Uh, we can have a, a better atmosphere. Thank you. Thank you. Other thoughts? Mr. Young. Yeah, if we go back to revisit uh, strategic plan in uh, energy, climate change, and uh, uh, environment protection, you can find actually two governments, they have uh, many uh, projects now is going on in uh, building energy efficiency, transportation, EVs, and industry boilers, and motors, and also the, uh, the, the cities. And you can see the first time in the LA, and ne next year we are in the Beijing. So in the state and the city level, actually we have uh, many uh, cooperation projects uh, still moving on. The question, uh, we still think they have a great potential and to improve all this uh, cooperation between these two countries. And first is uh, how can we stimulate the private sector also to involve all these government projects. And we think the partnership now so far is good because US, you know, for instance, in some projects, they still have private and research bodies and uh, that uh, carry out the same project. But the question is uh, so far, is the private sector still uh, have a more potential and to be involved, for instance, in the CCS. Now we, we just only talk, we not, not take any action. And in the, uh, in the cities, and how can we uh, see the uh, build more uh, vehicles and in the port, how can we make a ship you know, burn the diesel more cleanly? And so I think in the, uh, particularly we have to focus on the China, the strategic plan, that is one bell, one road. And so that is mean, uh, means we only not concern about uh, uh, all these countries in Asia, in Europe. And so we hopefully the private uh, American private company also can involve. Damien, you're, no one has done more than your boss, Hank Paulson, uh, to bring our two countries together working on this issue. Do you just want to say a word about? Well, I think one thing, uh, just to be additive rather than redundant, I think one area to, to kind of uh, jump off uh, the, the point that Dr. Young made is I think uh, private, you know, we don't, have a, we don't have capital scarcity in this world. We have a lot of abundant capital. It's, it's about allocating it in, 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 into the right places, and we're talking about private capital. So uh, the Chinese are actually very much, as part of their 13th five-year plan, uh, is p pushing a lot for the concept of green finance. And I think that's hugely transformative if we can get it right. Uh, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult uh, process of trying to think about how you would green uh, the, the, the financial system uh, in, the, in the abstract sense, but getting private capital, leveraging private capital to really uh, uh, you know, adopt certain principles and concepts where they invest in a more uh, green, sustainable way writ large globally, and this doesn't have to be China alone. I think that's an area that the U.S. and China, and perhaps even a, a, a greater uh, multilateral group, could uh, could uh, champion and support. Go. Yeah. Um, just two weeks ago, um, actually one day after uh, Xi Jinping met with uh, Francois Hollande to discuss the forthcoming uh, Paris meeting, uh, China um, reported that it had, uh, it had uh, under-reported its coal use by 17%. Uh, 
Now, I want to explain what 17% means. 17% is 600 million tons of annual use of coal. That's Shanxi province. That's 70% of America's coal use. That's 240,000 swimming pools full of coal, Olympic ones. Oops. All of a sudden, they discovered. So how can you talk about all these goals for 2050, 2030, 220, when we cannot even establish a base of where we are today? We don't even know where we are today because the statistics are so either false or messy. Or I don't know what the reason. But to underreport. 17% variation in your use of energy. Now, for that one, somebody needs to go to prison. Because this is the biggest form of institutional corruption when you mislead people on your national statistics. And I want to ask you, how can you explain such uh, a mismatch? And how can we trust that we can have a credible goals down the road when we don't even know where we are today. OK, let, uh, uh, let me answer your hard question. This is uh, very good. And the New York Times interviewed me and they called, called me and talking about the statistical data. Yes, China have revised this data. And this is based on their third uh, economical survey. And they find out many small enterprises and many local areas, they use the different uh, statistic method and different, uh, you know, they didn't report. So now come out, this data is about, uh, you say 17%, I told them it's 14%, but then finally they and they figure out 70%, that doesn't matter. The matter is, uh, that means China uh, statistics system become more open, more transparent. If they like to cover, they will not report these revised data. Of course, this is actually is at is about uh, one billion CO two emissions, and that's more. But uh, I would like to see the uh, another positive side. That means uh, this is uh, not only transparent, more accurate, and give our think tank um, more a reliable basis to, to carry out the study. If the data is not correct, how can you get conclusions correct? Garbage in, garbage out. So, so that is a positive. A non-positive, that is that China is open. Say, okay, now we have this problem. So now I let all the people know. And so we think is that whatever before we estimate is about 8 billion CO2 emission. Now it's become 9 billion CO2 emission. But Chinese government said, we will do more. You know, we have to, to make a more convenience. And another third one is, uh, say, if China used uh, more energy, uh, based on our study, China peak load for CO2 emission, the peak point is not 2030, become earlier, 2025, even earlier. Because the energy now, coal consumption decline, decline more fast than the people expected. And so that means China can actually reach, reach the peak for CO2 emission before the 2025. That is the good news. Of course, China has to do, to do so based on our study. Of course, new data and, they, uh, and, and uh, 
and all data when we figure out China emit more about one billion uh, a ton of the CO2 emission. But simultaneously, at this period, China saved about 300 million tons of CO2. Simultaneously, because they have a carbon intensity. But next year, we'll impose the carbon cap. So 2017, they can start for the uh, Chinese ETS, national-wide. And so I think is a... Uh, uh, that view is that uh, you can see, uh, you know, for this data. Uh, uh, so, so I talk to the to the uh, to the reporter interview me. I say, okay, uh, you use the the title maybe is uh, very confused, and but you have to say some negative, positive, and let people understand what is uh, uh, this story behind. You just it, it's a follow-up clarification on that. My, I just want to make sure this is right. My understanding is. This revision was, it was not the result of some foreign NGO or uh, some foreign force. This was the government statistical bureau revising its own statistics, correct? And if that's right, do you see this as a sign of China moving, this government moving towards improved reliability and improved transparency in its data collection? Uh, uh, I think it's an international organization and also domestic organization involved in this. Uh, is that uh, is, uh, one year ago, and we submit a proposal, policy proposal, we think we have to uh, carry out a new study and to make uh, energy data right. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, uh, uh, we have uh, openly uh, invite all the media to come over to our workshop. We talk about this. This is not secret. Every in the energy circle, they understand the data is not right because they use the different uh, local and the central government use the different uh, the system for the data collection and estimation. So based on our study, actually our study will, our final conclusion will come out one year earlier, but we wait because we have a plan B. We think China soon or later will issue the new statistic data. So we waste one year waiting for this, and finally they come out. And so our our report, a very good report, is our prediction, but 2020 will come out next year. Before is a is a this year, but now. Okay, we have a lot of hands. We've got let's see, right, right here with two and right here, and then we'll go to the back, and then we'll wrap up. I'm Bob Hershey. I'm a consultant. Uh, what is being done for routine control of particulate, such as by using electrostatic precipitators or bag houses? Um, so, I, so I think a lot of the um, um, newer coal plants um, have installed a lot of these um, uh, bag houses. They, they use a lot of sort of, you know, generally speaking, environmental technologies to control not only PM2.5, but things like sulfur, uh, sulfur dioxide, and, and NOx. So those levels have gone down. If you look at the official data, if you can believe the official data, uh, they have gone down um, um, uh, quite a bit over the last uh, five-year plan and also the, this five-year plan. Uh, I think for a while there was some concern that uh, some of the coal plants were installing them, but they were literally not turning them on because it would be, it would be more costly. 
so I think they've uh, sent teams out to invest in, to kind of monitor and supervise. So I think the uh, compliance rate has gone up quite a bit now. I think it's pretty high for a lot of the newer coal plants. So on that side, I think they're actually doing a pretty decent job. Yes, sir. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, my name is Takamoto Suzuki of CSIS. Uh, I have three questions, but uh, we, have, we are going to a lunch time, so that's I, one question. Uh, from the beginning of the October, uh, Chinese government starts a new uh, policy for uh, stimulating, promoting uh, uh, small car sales. And the last, last month, the uh, Chinese car sales uh, is increasing more than 10%. But on the other hand, uh, this policy uh, may opposite to the uh, uh, sales promotion for uh, electric vehicle or reducing uh, energy. So uh, how do you think about it? Yeah, I would like to answer the question first. And China, uh, EPA actually established many standards for the for the power plant and for the boilers for motors. Uh, you know, like US uh, and then you know EPA did. The question is the implementation. Unfortunately, and and uh, now is a new ad, uh, amendment of the energy uh, protect uh, the environment protection law just come over and this year. So they adopt uh, many effective measures um, from the U.S. Clean Air Act or other, uh, you know, laws, and that's including the public mitigation and the daily uh, daily fine based on the the cumulative daily fine and others. So that is a criminal uh, uh, criminal before it's not like the same. So so I think that is a very uh, strong effective and to do. And so next year. The China Clean Act will come out, and so that will uh, very strongly influence on the implementation of the environment standard and regulations. And back to your transportation and for sale, the China. I, uh, I think is uh, uh, China now is uh, every year is produce uh, more than ten million, uh, like like twelve million uh, the cars. And so in this case, they like to promote a small efficient and also electricity car. And so uh, personally, I think that is a good because for the young people, they like to buy the SUV or others, you know. And so I don't think that is a good behavior. And so electricity car in the in the in the urban area, and you can see they have a quota. For instance, in the China, you have to, you know, bid for the for the car. Uh, Pen, pen, they call the panel? Uh, like a lo lottery license car system? Yeah, uh, yeah license lottery. Plate auctioning system? Yeah, in the Shanghai, they have a lottery. And, and uh, so, so that means if, you you, if you buy electricity car, you don't need to, uh, to, to bid. So you can buy. So that means gradually increase. Of course, we, we also warning the, 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 the municipal government. We say, yes, you can help to solve the problem is uh, about the environment. But... The transportation jam, you cannot get rid of that. So I think is a in Beijing we like to do a two more way. I think is a more effective. One is a improve the public transportation, and second bring the bicycle back to Beijing. All right, we have a question in the back right here, and then right up front, and then we'll close. Yeah. I was, uh, was glad that uh, Gal brought up this, uh, this issue with the uh, teensy-weensy uh, coal data revision. I assume the data that uh, Damien, you're showing up there maybe doesn't reflect that. 
Uh, it's okay, I don't believe the GDP data either, so uh, maybe I shouldn't be bothered by the, the uh, diversion. But I think uh, more I wanted to, to toss another question to you, Damien. Um, I'm in full accord that uh, with your analysis that what we're seeing right now is uh, economic reform that's really being pushed uh, under the guise almost of uh, corruption, uh, you know, uh, going out uh, after corruption. Uh, and I'm wondering whether your thoughts of, A, whether this is ultimately stabilizing or destabilizing, as, as you correctly note. I mean, we haven't seen something like this in China for at least two decades, if not considerably longer. Um, and then beyond that, um, is this really uh, anything more than, than she consolidating his power? I mean, is it, is it even real? Uh, is, is almost the economic effect kind of secondary? And, and really, we've got other things going on as primary drivers. I uh, didn't mean that to be quite so leading. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious as to your response. On your first question, whether it's destabilizing or stable, uh, I think in in the near term, there's one sense that it's potentially destabilizing in the sense that we've heard anyway that, uh, and, and, and talking to folks in Beijing is that, uh, you know, uh, what, given what's happening on, uh, given what's happening on the political side and the political climate, there's a lot of, uh, reluctance and inaction within the bureaucracies to actually uh, do certain things or carry out policies because they're just not quite sure uh, what the new norms are because the rules of the games are being changed. So, uh, so that's a potential uh, problem in terms of uh, uh, forcing the bureaucracies to implement uh, the mandates uh, from the very top. And as you can see, Premier Lee and others have repeatedly gone down and sort of kind of, you know, hectored the bureaucracies to, to, to do what they're being told. Uh, so that's one uh, one immediate manifestation, but I don't think it's sort of, I think you're really asking if it's systemically destabilizing. I, I don't see that yet, and, and, and I think we'll have to see whether in the second term they try to institutionalize some of this stuff. Uh, possibly make the anti-corruption uh, CCDI a lot more of an institutionalized, sort of independent within the party kind of institution. Uh, they've never had that before. Uh, so we'll see how the second act plays out, but I, I, I don't get the sense that it's systemically destabilizing. Uh, in terms of se second question, is she doing this for political gain, uh, you know, smiting enemies, or really uh, he's committed to, to reform? I think uh, it's probably a mishmash and a bit of a, you know, all of the above. Like I said, I think the best policies get you a twofer. So I think in some respects he is getting rid of certain, uh, you know, uh, um, politicians that he, you know, and, and putting his own people in place. But I think there is a real genuine commitment to kind of get some of the economic agenda done. And I think in part it's moved slowly than some people had anticipated precisely because the politics have not been aligned as much as they should have. And that shouldn't have been a surprise because it's a very, very tough challenge. All right, last question. Right. Yeah, Jerry Fletcher, West Virginia University. I just would like to go back to the, the graph that's up there, and there's, there's really three issues that I see with it. One is there has been significant uh, cooperation in the last for quite a few years between the statistical agencies in the U.S. And, and in China. I know there has been a lot of work to try and modernize that. I, I hope that this is actually an outcome of, of some of that effort. The other thing is, as you look at those graphs, one of the things that we look at is coal consumption in terms of tonnage. It's not in terms of the energy that's being produced. One of the things that's happened in China in the last 10 years, mostly, 
is the new power plants that are coming on are significantly more efficient. And the energy output per ton of coal has gone up a great deal. Some of the power plants that were built in the early part of this century are already coming down because they don't meet standards. How much of this of what we're seeing in here is, should we be looking at energy instead of looking at coal and uh, to see what's really happening in terms of the mix of the Chinese economy? Sir. So if we should we look at energy at all or should we look at the prices of energy? Because all the graphs I've ever seen is what kind of uh, quantities of energy, but different energy come at different prices and the effect on growth is usually the price or the quantity. So actually those are two pretty different questions, so yeah. but, but both key points. So, <laughs> so Jerry's asking a question about you know, t tonnage versus energy content, which is pretty important. Uh, and Yossi's asking the quantity versus price question, which is also important. And any thoughts? Yeah, I think is, uh, the, uh, the question is that we have to think who consumed the coal, who consumed the energy. That is a very significant, uh, is a, a, like similar like U.S. and U.S. Uh, consumed the coal. And because the major driver to to keep uh, coal down, they have two reasons. One is a uh, public health. Uh, uh, the the reason another is uh, is a uh, natural gas subsidize the coal uh, in the power sector. And in China, if if we think about the uh, uh, which sector consume the coal most, and that is uh, iron steel, and cement, and uh, chemical and building material, or others. And other is the power sector. And building, so that incremental um, for the power sector and for the building, and um, for the coal to chemicals still there, but others, iron still done. You know they reach the peak, they cannot go in anymore because economy don't demand as very strong for iron steel, cement. All the interstate sector is done. So this is a major driver, and for the power sector, uh, in my PPT you can see. Actually, they, uh, their demand for the power sector now is, a, is a very, very, uh, very slow. So in this case, our policy, pre, uh, you know, our recommendation is that let this room, let renewable and natural gas to play rather than coal. Otherwise, they have no room for renewable and natural gas to play. And for the building, of course, we have to use the more natural gas because the cities, we have to clean up the air. And for the coal to chemical, we strongly against. We say coal to gas, coal to oil, doesn't make sense. In US, and we have uh, these cases, it doesn't make sense. It, without um, you know, uh, uh, the, the department DOE to support, this project will fail, but actually they failed. So we strongly believe, uh, believe that we have to stop the coal to natural gas, coal to oil. So in this case, you can see the coal lost their engine, and they will drop. And actually, based on our understanding, last year, coal become drop. They have no way their coal will back to the, their golden age. No way. And so, so in this case, the final demand is oil and for natural gas. I'm talking about natural gas prices. And in U.S., natural gas is lower than the coal in the power sector, and so that's why they can replace. But in China, no. Coal, natural gas still higher. So this is why we have to have a new policy and to stimulate how can we change the pricing signal and to, and to put a more natural gas for power generation.
Any final thoughts? Damien. Just two very quickly. I think uh, you're absolutely right. This, this is a blunt instrument. I mean, uh, you can't, you know, agri-consumption is not, it's not, it's not, it's not disaggregated. It's not necessarily nuanced. I was simply trying to show sort of as a proxy for, you know, uh, during the height of industrialization, coal consumption seemed to track uh, GDP growth pretty well, but now it's no longer. And I think you're absolutely right. In, in one of the recent papers I wrote, I looked at, I found steel industry data in terms of their coal consumption, uh, comparing China, Japan, and South Korea, and the U.S. actually. And China is actually getting closer and closer to Japanese efficiency levels in some of their biggest steel uh, steel plants. So I think that definitely has something to do with it. So uh, I don't mean to just say that consumption is diverging. That's the end of the story. Um, pricing, that's a nice thought, except you know, pricing is not purely market or liberalized in China. So it's hard to talk about energy commodities purely from a pricing perspective. Uh, natural gas is not. End uh, uh, use gasoline is still somewhat controlled by the national uh, by the National Development and Reform Commission, and this is why I was saying that they got rid of the uh, they they arrested everybody in the pricing department of the NDRC, and guess what? A month a few months later, they liberalized 21 different categories of prices. So pricing is a political issue. It's one of the key things that the Chinese government still controls and intervenes heavily. So it's fine to talk about pricing, but it's not market-based, so it, I find it hard to talk about it in terms of something that is not quite uh, determined by pure supply and demand. It's such a great panel. We could keep on going, but it is lunchtime. So please join me in giving them a big hand. <laughs> <laughs>